Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you like what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. And today we get to welcome the incredible Ken Rusk to the show. Ken is the author of Blue Collar Cash. Uh, love your work, secure your future, and find your happiness for life. Ken went from a ditch digger to a blue collar, very successful uh, construction entrepreneur. Uh, Ken, great to have you on the show today. Great. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you having me. Uh, we kind of talked before we went live here, but one of the best things about this book, and again, uh, I, I can't recommend it enough, um, and my biggest takeaway from, we'll talk about the actual specifics of different parts of the book, but this is a, this is a type of book where I wish I read at the start of the pandemic or a book I had access to maybe when I was going through college or before college and not to take away because I love my college degree. I don't, I think it helped actually shape and harness my drive and direction. Um, but when you read a book like this and you see the other side of it and how this whole narrative of going to college or what we're told was you have to go to college, get your degrees, all this stuff versus those that go into uh, trade schools and stuff and that, that so again thank you for writing this book and I guess to kind of kick this off did you realize when you wrote this book that it would be launching and coming out in a time in the world during the pandemic uh, where a lot of people were at home you know obviously it would be really difficult to predict something like that and and one could say that it would be one of the more challenging times to release a book because you know, all the PR stuff that I had, all the news programs I was supposed to appear on, you know, all of a sudden went virtual and, um, you know, went from four or five minutes sitting on someone's couch and being interviewed to, you know, 35 seconds on a, on a Zoom call. So, yeah, it was pretty challenging. But I can tell you, at the same time, I think things happen for a reason, because a lot of people really took stock of what was important in their life and where they were headed and what they were doing. And um, so it, it, the message got out there pretty well, even with the pandemic. So I'm um, again, double-edged sword, but I'm, I'm really blessed that it did. One of the reasons, and I'm in the security industry, so I do a lot of touring the world with bands and celebrities doing security. And with my background in law enforcement and the secret service, I've always thought, well, that's a, that's a, that's an entity that's never, people are always going to need that. People always need security and protection. Um, but when the pandemic hit and for that first six months to a year, I wasn't doing what I was normally doing. And so I had, I basically, started this podcast as a means to stay in touch with people, to learn, to fall back in the love of reading and talking to different guests and people. And it got me thinking, I was able to adapt. I was able to transcend my, or just kind of alter my, my narrative of hard work. Uh, I've always been a blue collar type of person. That's how I was raised. That's how I've always been. I I'm very receptive to those type of people, those groups of people be associated with them. And so I was able to take kind of my hardworking mentality and put it towards the podcast or kind of alter what could I do to survive? Now, financially, I was able to make it through, um, but I was able to kind of basically give myself this new idea and kind of, I don't know, it's one of those things where it's like a lot of times people, a lot of my friends I went to college with, they got these $80,000, $100,000 a year degrees from Ivy League schools or Harvard. They were getting work before the pandemic, but then when the pandemic hits, not only are they trying to make ends meet to pay for this education that got them nothing, they're struggling to even 
pay a bill because now they're doing a job they weren't even they may have looked down upon or not even that maybe the job they didn't think they'd have to actually do to pay for a college degree and again it's just so fascinating how you were able to kind of touch upon all this stuff in the book well you know it, it's it's interesting because every economy every every you know economic cycle that you go through has to have a balance it's like anything else in your life you know you have to eat right you have to sleep right you have to exercise you have to go see the doctor when you i mean all the all the balance things you have to have you know some type of passion in your life some type of relationship or whatever right so it, economies are the same way and you know if, if this is a simple number there's 167 million people in the US considered full employment and yet 77 million of those people do something with their hands. So roughly half of the country is doing what I do, okay? Working, working with your hands, doing some type of trade or a skill. And um, yet all of a sudden, and this goes back to the 80s and we can talk about it, but all of a sudden we're trying to push 100% of our kids into college. And I thought, well, man, wh where did that disconnect come from? And, um, you know, again, it goes back to, th this is somewhat of a long answer, but when, you know, when I was in high school, you could walk down the hallway and go, wow, what are they doing in that wood shop over there? That's pretty cool. You know, they're turning a leg on a table or they're, they're fixing a car in the mechanic shop or they're welding something or wiring an outlet or learning how to cook or whatever. And then someone decided, well, let's get rid of those um, rooms full of awesome equipment and let's put computers in there. And that's fine. We had to learn computers, but, you know, why did it have to be one or the other? Right. So, you know, now you have millions of kids that would have almost accidentally discovered how cool it was to be a carpenter. And now they're saying, no, I got to go through this college prep high school now and get pushed into or corralled into college. And then you find out some of the high schools are financially incentivized to push kids through college. And it's just a real bad idea. So I'm kind of calling out the fact that we better get back to balancing our economy or you're going to be seeing carpenters making <laughs> more than doctors, which is starting to happen, by the way. And you're going to be waiting months and months and years for things to get fixed, built, repaired, or, or improved upon and pay through the nose to do it, which is good for the few that are still willing to do it. But um, I, I just think so many kids are being led down a road of college debt and degrees that they never even wanted. And, you know, now they're having to go backwards and, and just pay that stuff off. And it's just uh, something I need to, I need to, I felt like I need to call attention to. You bring up a good point with the woodworking growing when I was in, I was actually one of the few classes once before they kind of get rid of it, but home economics, like learning to sew or learning how to bake a terrible apple strudel or <laughs> how to patch a shirt or play in a piece of wood or different staves, all that type of stuff. When you look back at it, my father's memories with my friends were those classes and the teachers were amazing because they were passionate about what they were doing and not to take away from the teachers who teach algebra or chaos theory or history it's all equally important i had just as much fun but you you could sense a as i got older that stuff and my sisters didn't get that same opportunity i did i was like well how's that teacher well he's no longer there or he got he's teaching somebody else now outside the woodworking class and it's like you see like their energy or happy to zap out of them because they realize they can't showcase what they what their living is to a generation of new kids that now are being told, hey, use the T85 graphic calculator or this type of stuff, yeah. which to this day, I still don't get why we actually had to use a calculator. Well, you know, and, and, and you think about it this way, you know, 
supply and demand is an amazing thing. And unless you mess with it, like unless you, you know, morph the numbers, it always works. It's a very powerful force to be reckoned with in, in any uh, economic um, system. So, you know, you, you've got all these jobs that are open that are going unfilled. And you've got for every 10 electricians that retire today, less than five are replacing them. So simple math is going to tell you that we're going to start overproducing these bland business degrees. The money is already dropping for those graduates from 70,000 to 50,000 a year because there's so many of them. And unfortunately, some of those kids got really good at beer pong, but that was about, that was about all they got out of their experience. So, you know, if, if you think about that, you're overproducing business degrees and you're under, underproducing carpenters, electricians, welders, cooks, whatever, you're going to see real quickly how that becomes imbalanced. And I always say this, I mean, maybe it's time for us to start thinking about being a contrarian thinker, which used to be normal, by the way. Now it's contrarian. And let's consider some of these trades and some of these other options, because where supply is low and demand is high, bingo, that's where the money goes. And that's what you're seeing now. I mean, I, I can, if you can fog a mirror, you can start with any electrician, any plumber, any carpenter in any, in any solid growing area and make $50,000 with no experience. I mean, you're just, that's how desperate the people are for people to work there. And um, what a great way to, to work for someone who's been doing it for years. And now they're teaching you all their trades and their crafts. And oh, by the way, because you're willing to come to work every day, they're going to put you under their wing and <laughs> treat you like a, a baby dove. And right. And, and, and then you come out of this thing with some real skill and the ability to run your own company someday and make four or five times that. So it, it just really is, it really is something that the, that the, the colleges kind of have the, 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 um, the guidance counselors and, and the uh, high schools kind of brainwashed who are then kind of brainwashing the parents into saying, this is the only way. That's crazy. It's that's never been true in society. It's not true today. In fact, it's more untrue today than it's ever been. So interesting thing. We just have to get that pendulum to swing back a little bit and, and get, uh, you know, get, get on the path to a better balanced economy. Comes to like the recruiting process for I live in a small town and the, it's the same family does electricity, same family does carpentry work. And it's, it's been great over the years seeing their kids now starting to work in that business. And not one of those things where I have to because my mom or dad need me to. They want to because they've seen how hardworking and that lifestyle and that type of work that, from their parents doing it. And But one of the interesting things, every time I talk to them or see them gathering, gathering or having a beer with them, it's like, well, how do you – who's working for you this summer? Well, John, we have so much work. We just don't get enough people to work. Like how do you, re, how do you find these kids when I was – 16, 17. I love summer work. I love doing all the odds and end jobs, yard work, all this craziness with all my friends. Now, these kids would rather be stuck inside on their phone or whatever. And like, how do you as a business, how does Rusk Industries, how do they network? How do they get people in there that want to buy into this idea that hard work and blue collar work is going to save our future? Well, first off, you know, you know, when, when we interview somebody, it used to be you know, me, boss, you, interviewee, and uh, why should I hire you, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, now that, it, that environment's changed because they have so many choices, right? There's 25, you know, hiring signs for, for hire 
between my office and the freeway. And that's only like a couple miles. Okay. So they have a lot of choices. So when they come into interviews now, they almost have this opinion of like, well, what's in it for me to work for you? Okay. And I'm totally okay with that because if, if, if they're thinking about what's in it for them, what their future could look like, what their, you know, what their next acquisition could look like, if they could clean their life up or build a life for themselves, you know, driver's license and cars and their first credit card, their checking account, their apartment, you know, whatever, their savings account, their 401k, you know, one of the first things that we ask them is, well, what are you here for? Like, why are you here? Because if we can't answer that, it doesn't matter where you work. So we always start with, why are you here? What, do you, what are you after? In fact, we actually have them draw on a big poster board all the different things that they like to achieve in their lifetime, what their unique personal nirvana would be. I call it comfort, peace, and freedom, what that would be. And then we ask them how we can help them get those things and how to accomplish them things. So long answer short, it's all about the culture that you have. And companies are waking up to the fact that they just can't beat on people and, and hire them like crazy and just feed people through the door. They're, they're waking up to the fact that I need to make my place really cool to work or I'm going to lose. And, um, you know, us being in the ditch digging business, we've had to be really cool for a very long time because it's tough work. So this isn't new to us, but it, it's, it's interesting how new it is to other companies that never really looked at their culture. I mean, you know, we've got a van that drives around with a, with a, a private chef. Okay. I say that in quotations, he makes cheeseburgers for our guys in the front yard of their jobs. Okay. He makes soup for them in the wintertime. We do all kinds of uh, games and all kinds of accolades and, and, and um, accomplishments and uh, birthday TV. And we have all these things that we do to make them feel like they're warm and welcome, but mostly we get them to understand they and only they are in control of their future financially and, every, and, and, and in every other format. And we're going to help them and guide them and show them how they can get those things that they want for themselves uh, for their life, you know, for, to start their life for them. For my industry in the security world, when it comes to hiring people for events or whatever it is, it's always interesting to me to break down the people that do a job for a paycheck versus the people that do this. It's their career. They love what they do. And so in your book, you talk about the passion and stuff. But if someone's a hard worker and they're really good at what they're doing, it's okay if they are doing it for a paycheck because they're working hard. But do you ever find in your side of things where the people that jump in there to start, they start with your company, they, not only they're hardworking, but they love this type of work. They want to grow and learn and all this stuff. Do you find those people easy to work with or do you kind of not really see a difference? Well, I look at it this way. I, I've stood in front of the 200 people that we have at our company on many occasions and said, I can't get what I want for this company or for myself until all of you get what you want first. And I absolutely believe that. You have to let go of this boss mentality, this ego mentality in, in this day and age and say, well, I need to find out what's good for everybody out there because if they are accomplishing their goals, I'm going to win every time. And so, you know, you build this force of people that are all rowing the same direction, that are all in tune, but they are very selfish and that's okay because I want them winning for themselves first before I win. I definitely want that. And, and in, this, in this frame, the word selfish is a good thing, self-ish. That's what I want. So if they're building their own lives with and through this organization, you know, I'm going to eventually win at the end of that. So that, that, that's kind of my mentality. Now, 
if someone comes on and they say to themselves, you know, I'm going to work for Ken for a little while. I'm going to get some experience. Um, I'm going to learn some things about, you know, running a company or whatever. And then I'm going to go do my own thing. Fine. Because if you're that good and you've done that, then I've benefited from your experience of being here four, five, 10 years. Okay. Now, the good news is we have this thing called uh, that, that Tom Galasano from Paychex calls an, an, an entrepreneurial employee where someone feels like they own their own company, but yet they're, they're really working within an, an, an organization. And that's because they can control a lot of things. So um, we have a lot of people that have been working here 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 years because they can build the life that they want and, um, and use this vehicle as a way to do that. You, you talk about the book, the, the idea of life savings and building for your future. And I guess, my, so my question for you is when someone who's maybe 25, maybe as a, a kid or just got married, they're saving and doing all this stuff, but say they have to replace the refrigerator or the car breaks down and these type of events that affect everyone all the time. How do, how do you, what's your advice to those people that always get discouraged when that stuff happens, maybe one after another? Um, is there any words you have or like what advice do you have to give those people that kind of feel dejected that, man, I can't ever, I can't ever get ready for the future because I'm still dealing with stuff in the past or even the, in the, in the present. That is a really awesome question. And, and it, it's kind of a mind trick, if you will. So when someone sits across from our desk and we interview them and we say, look, we're going to pay you, you know, $45,000 uh, for this particular job. And then we, we, we want them to look us back and say, thank you for paying me 42,000 a year. Okay. Because that first 3000 you never had it, you couldn't spend it, you never missed it because you never had it. So, I mean, it's one of those things where the first 3000 just disappears. And I'll tell you why I picked that number. If you start a 401k when you're 25 years of age and you save 3000 a year, which is, it's only 60 bucks a week, okay? Two movies <laughs> and a pizza, okay? Yeah. So you, you, you start that 60 bucks you can save for 10 years from the time you're 25 to the time you're 35, and you can stop saving that $60. And by the time you retire, current numbers will show that you'll have over a million dollars in your 401k account. Now, if you start when you're 35, it takes you 30 years to save the same amount of money to only get 600,000. And it's only because of the power of time and the power of what I call the power of young money. So you have to absolutely convince somebody to pay yourself first. You know, you hear that all the time. Pay yourself first, pay a little bit of charity second, and then live off your budget with the rest of what you have, that 42000 Take the first three, forget about it. And um, it's really cool because we, we have what we call a 401k millionaire club here. And these kids are 23, 24, 25, 26, and they can go to their to the bar with their buddies or wherever they're going bowling or whatever. And they can say, my retirement's handled, baby. I'm done. I don't even have to think about it anymore. And I don't get why we don't teach this in high school. It's the dumbest thing in the world because it's so simple. We could, we could get rid of the social security system altogether. If we could just convince everybody to start young and save your money and not depend on other people to do those things. So it's a, it, it's a pretty cool mind trick, but um, it works like crazy. So we use it a lot here. It's uh, when I did the Secret Service, one of the first classes we spent on was uh, finances, it, not only the investigation aspect of the career, but how to save money, what's your 401k, insurances, retirement, thrift savings plan. And then when I jumped private, my CEO sent me down, okay, 
because I'm not going to ask you anything personal, but what are your, what's your, what's your salary? What's your budget? Like how, what bills you paying? Do not buy that new car with your first big paycheck. Do not buy that motorcycle. Do not save your money. And it's one of those things I took to heart. I'm like, well, dude, it's, I've earned it. Like, I don't worry. I'm not worried about money, but stuff happens. You buy a house or car breaks down. And so anytime we hire someone now, one of the first things we sit down with is, Hey, don't be that guy that just buys that new truck because if you're not working or a pandemic hits, you're not going to afford that car. Now you're going to sell that motorcycle or you're going to sell that second home or be smart with your money. I, I think I wish high school and even college got you ready for that. It's very rudimental, very kind of uh, you say retirement. But the idea of an actual course based on the workforce and how to retire and plan or just read your book. Or read maybe another person put a book out there about uh, motivation and retirement and planning ahead. It's like, why are these type of books being pushed out there from a school? Is someone scared of this knowledge getting out there, which you clearly lay out in this book? Well, yeah, there's a couple things. Um, I don't know where that credit card companies get that list and they know you just turned 18 years of age. I don't know where they get those lists, but all of a sudden you're 18 and you have six or seven credit card applications in your mailbox. If we're that good at doing that, why can't we be that good at teaching the kids how to use those things to begin with or how to avoid renting money for long periods of time? I mean, it's, it's absolutely nuts. I, I, I said this the other day just to someone and they looked at me like I was from Mars. So you're having a party in your backyard and you're renting tables and you have to rent these tables and you know you're going to have this backyard thing so when do you normally return the tables well as soon as the party is done right because they charge you by the day so would you ever think of just leaving those tables in your backyard for six or seven months <laughs> well no because you'd be paying rent on it all the time it's the same thing with money you know it's the same thing you're 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 rent you're not borrowing money you're renting it from somebody else and they're charging you a fee to do that you wouldn't let that money just sit around like a bunch of tables in your backyard no you return them right away because that's that's money that's that that's costing you so simple 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 um, you know tactics like that for someone to learn how to manage their money it 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 really is mind blowing that we don't prepare i mean we're so good at talking about what your programs are you can be dependent on as you get older. Why don't we talk about being dependent in the first place or independent in the first place? So, yeah, it, it's a challenge. And, you know, I, I, again, I don't know where credit card companies get those lists from, but I have a pretty good idea. And um, it, it's sad that the same institutions don't teach people how to use them uh, before they get themselves in trouble. It's almost like they feed on the weak-minded people. Again, they can't think for themselves. They don't have the knowledge of, say, reading your book or how the world actually works. It's just crazy that there is such a push for grab their money, grab their late fees, grab the stuff, put them in debt, 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 so they can just keep sucking off anything we have off our government teat. And you're kind of like, man, this is so – it's so sad. I'm, I'm fortunate I had people in my life, parents and role models that – Hey, don't do that. Or if you're going to do it, be smart or just yeah, that, the whole, it's just crazy to me that people still to this day are just get so wrapped up in debt, chasing this image or this, this story that someone's telling them they have to put money towards. Well, it's almost, you know, I, I heard, I heard it's almost like an addiction. I, I heard somebody say the other day, 
if you want to buy something from the store, go to the store and buy it, but leave it there for two weeks. You know, you bought it in your mind, you set it aside, you know, you want this thing, but leave it there. And if in two weeks you need to go back and you really want that thing that bad, then, then go ahead and do it. But think about it along the way a little bit. Um, so yeah, there, there's a lot of little things that you can do. You know, there's, 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 there's lots of things that like Dave Ramsey and those, all those guys love to talk yes. about. And, and it's all really good stuff as long as you keep it simple. But to your point, the biggest thing is who's getting to these impressionable minds in the, in the first place and how powerful their messages are. I mean, I was at a party and, you know, getting back to college and there were some parents there. Well, my daughter's going to Stanford or my daughter's going to, you know, Ohio State or my daughter's going here, there. Well, what's so-and-so? Well, you know, he's, he's just, he's just going to be a plumber. Okay. Well, you know, I happen to know that plumber and he's now got six vans, 12 employees making about 250 a year. I mean, so, you know, it, it, it really is something that needs to be said because I, I, don't, I don't think that anyone ever pulled up in my driveway and saw all that I've accomplished and went, wow, where'd you go to school? That's never happened. I mean, they, they, they say to me, well, man, how did you grind this life out? And then I'm happy to share the story with them, but it's just a perspective thing, really, and a stigmatization thing that, um, that we really have to start working on. For those that haven't read your book, but should, uh, that should be everyone, you talk a lot about visualization. Like, what kind of things? How do you visualize yourself? Uh, like, if Ken ten years ago visualized where he is today, so Ken today, where are you visualizing yourself ten years from today? Like, how do you? Is is it an everyday process where you wake up and you're like, okay, I'm gonna visualize how successful this day is gonna be this week, this month, this year? Like, how do you break it down that way? Well, I took one of the most powerful forces that we have when it comes to anticipation or vision, okay, seeing something. You know, a lot of times when you're having a conversation with somebody and they'll say, hey, Ken, do you see what I mean? And if you break that down for a second, do you see what I mean? Yeah, do you see what I mean? What that means is they're actually asking you to see the pictures that they have in their head. Now, I'm no psychologist. I have no letters after my name, but this, I, this stuff I know because I've been doing it for a long time. They want you to identify with the photographs that they have in their head. So when, 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 you, when it comes to vision, one of the easiest things that I can give you as an example is planning a vacation. We all as kids went on vacations with our families or went somewhere, even the holidays. We went visiting relatives yeah. at the holiday. And you could, you could draw that. You could smell it. You could see it, taste it. You could draw that, you know, I'm going to the beach and I'm going to put my feet in the sand Then I'm going to sit on the beach chair. I'm going to have an umbrella, maybe a book. I'm going to have a, a, a drink of, or something, you know, the warm air going to blow in my face, the smell of the ocean, the sounds of the seagulls. You can anticipate that. The hotel we're going to, you know, the suntan lotion I'm going to use, my sandals, everything. You can anticipate that and you do for six months. You know, we plan this vacation and now we're thinking about it. We're going to go. It's going to be awesome. Well, if that, if that vision is so powerful, why shouldn't we anticipate everything in our lives? Why shouldn't we anticipate our, our, our second or third house? Why shouldn't we anticipate what we want to drive? What, how we want to give back charity-wise, what our hobbies are going to be, what our sport's going to be, what our health is going to be, what our, our house is going to look like. Why can't we anticipate all of those things just like we do a vacation? Because, you know, I always say the difference between someone like Elon Musk 
or Stephen Jobs is they had the ability to really be awesome at visualization, right? Seeing things. There's so much of our brain that we don't use, but I got to tell you, when you start visualizing things and you start anticipating all across your, your life, like all of the different aspects of your life, your, your brain just goes on supercharge. And, you know, what your brain sees, it tends to attract itself to. So you will almost unconsciously move towards the things that you think most about, good or bad. Okay. So you need to be very careful there. But yeah, I think, um, you know, we're, we're, we're building another building for our office here, which is the fifth time we've done that. Um, I'm doing some developing out, uh, building some houses. So I just started one out in Branson, Missouri, which is really cool. Um, I, I, I just constantly anticipate my daughter's getting married in, in, in a month in my backyard, which is really cool. So I anticipate a lot of things that are, you know, six months, a year, two years, three years, five years, 10 years down the road. And um, I have a list of about 10 or 15 things that I wake up anticipating every single day. And it just makes life so much better when you're, when the, the energy and the attraction of that anticipation kind of, it's like one more motivator on your back, just kind of pushing you forward. And to me, it's literally the only way to, to, to live because the only other way to live is to hope something happens and then react to it. And that's no way for me to, to run my daily life. Is there any, like, how does fear affect your life? Is there any time you've ever been afraid about what you're thinking or what, maybe what you visualized or something you visualized? It's so tough to get there that there's a fear in the back of your mind where it's like, man, what if I don't get there? Like, is there, has that ever crept into your head like that? Yeah. And, and that, that's another thing that I write about, actually. Uh, you know, it's, it's a process, you know, and, and I learned this a long time ago. I, I've never built a skyscraper before, but if I did, what would be the first thing I would do logically? Well, I have to find some land, I guess, right? You need a place to put the building. I never built a skyscraper before, but if I did, what would I do next? Well, I'd probably hire an architecture firm to like draw the building. And then I'd, I'd probably have to find a builder. And then I'd probably have to find supplies like steel and concrete and drywall. And I never built a skyscraper before, but if I did, I'd probably have to find some way to heat it and cool it if it's in the, in the Midwest. So the more you answer that question, the more you walk yourself through doing it. And guess what? Pretty soon you've done it. So I think fear is, is good because it's a measure. Uh, but I think if you take that fear and turn it into logic, it becomes really powerful. And that's just, that, that's, that's the way we tend to do it around here anyways. I've, uh, when it comes to the college degree, I love my four-year degree in criminal justice. And I'm actually doing what I got my degree in. I love the psychology. I love all the class. I loved it. But when I see where people, they, they get these four-year degrees and maybe they do the, it's weird for me. Maybe it's a two-part thing here where when somebody gets a degree, they just put all this money and time into something, but they're not doing that career path. Maybe there's a life event that happened that chaos that and you became a single mom or a, you got you got sent to Iraq as you're in military or whatever it is. I get some of those situations, but for those people that waste all this time and money and resources on a degree but don't do it, are they really chasing just again this idea you brought up, this notion that you have to get this four-year degree, or are they just not sure what they want to do? And for those people that aren't sure, the last thing you should do is go to college waste time and money resources on something you don't really believe in yourself? That's, a, that's an awesome question. So, you know, I say in every podcast that I've done, I'm not anti-college, okay? It's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm anti-unspecific college or I'm anti-college that 
is for everybody, okay? So if, if you look at this system, if you go in to be a doctor, you anticipate being a doctor when you get out. If you go in to be an architect, you anticipate being an architect when you get out. And the same thing happens for teaching or accounting or whatever. That's a specific scenario. So you're willing to do that. You're willing to pay for it because you're going to get rewarded in the end. That's fine. So what I'm talking about is all of the non-specific ones where you're just going to go because someone told you you had to, because someone said, uh, you know, this is the path and and you know my my parents will be proud of me if i go to college because i hear them telling their friends or oh, my son's going to college and my daughter's doing this those are the ones that i think are in trouble because if you look at the stats on those 40 percent of those kids go into school without any idea why they're going 40 percent now 25 percent of those once they figure it out change their degree within the first two years inefficient little little waste of money there 33% of adults never work in the field. They, no, I'm sorry, only 33% of adults ever work in the field they studied. So that's a wholly inefficient system for me and a very expensive one in my mind as well. So it's the nonspecific ones that are going to college that I think are the most, most troubling, that they really need to be thinking about what's going on. The specific ones, hey, man, you know, if you're going to operate on my shoulder so I can get back out on the golf course, I want you to know everything there is to know about a knife before you pick it up. Okay. Um, but beyond that, it's an expensive and, and sometimes inefficient system for those who are just kind of like, you know, corralling themselves through. And the other side of that too is when you get those 40 degrees and you love your job, you do it. I think sometimes I've known a couple of people and family members that they get that degree and then they stop they don't keep pushing themselves to go further. Now, whether that's further education or further uh, pushing themselves further ahead to try to be, be the best at what they do in their field. And sometimes people get complacent or they just, once they achieve that uh, degree, uh, I'm there. I don't have to work any harder. I'm going to do my thing. How do you motivate? Like you, again, you talk about motivation too, but for me, it's the saddest thing to see someone who's unmotivated when they appear to be doing what they want to do, yet they have no motivation or lack of motivation when it comes to furthering maybe their education, but pushing themselves to a higher level of success. Well, I, I always say that we don't, we don't work. We don't live so we can work. I mean, that's not the whole basis. Right. We work so that we can live, right? So what does the live part look like? Most people can't answer that question. And that's, that's what I say, no matter where you are in life, you know, people always say, oh, Ken, you know, you're lucky you're an entrepreneur. No, <laughs> that isn't true. Here, here's a crayon and some paper, draw entrepreneur. All right. You can't, it's a vague term. So what I had though, was I had a lot of vision. I had a lot of ideas of what I wanted. I had a lot of ideas of what I was anticipating. I knew what I wanted some of these things to look like, what would make my life cool to me anyway. And then once I had that as a driver, all those characteristics, persistence, resilience, courage, faith, humility, all those entrepreneurial characteristics just became, come alive in you. And, and, and anyone can do this. I'm not a special entrepreneur. Anyone can do this. So to that person, I would say, why did you go to college? Why did you get that degree? What are you looking to pursue as a career, and why are you doing all of that? Like, what's the end game look like for you? Because if, if you don't have control 
over what the end game is, then you're just going to wait for life to happen to you <laughs> instead of you actually happening to your life, which is the ultimate thing we should all be doing. Right. And um, yeah, I find it sad that someone went through all that time and money and effort, and then they're kind of lost. So whenever I, 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 I encounter that, it's always, well, stop for a second. I need to know what you want your life to look like first, and then we can path you on a way to get there. You talked about age a little bit ago. And one of the interesting things is whether you're, you're, you, you're, you're in a job and you're forced to retire when you're 60s or whatever, uh, or you're a stay-at-home parent and you can't do the job you used to do, but you love. Those people, there's always that fear of you can't – when you become an entrepreneur, I think a lot of times people think you're too old to do that. And some of the most successful people I follow and look at, they change career paths or found their true calling later in life, and they kind of – bought into your idea, a lot of those ideas you talked to here about being a blue-collar worker. It's like one of those things where age, you always hear age is a number. You never, now, especially when it comes to health and trying to accomplish stuff, you're, you're, your only, you're the only thing that's in the way of yourself is yourself. And for those people that are too old, it's it's interesting to me when they think that oh, they have those decisions and they have those thoughts that, man, I can't do this. I can't I can't start an Etsy page or I can't start my own painting company or it's, it's kind of crazy. It's really cool. how you talk about that where it's like, Hey, anyone can do this. You just have to do it. Yeah. You know, I, if, if you look at the path that I took, for example, I started in the ditch digging business when I was 15 years old. Okay. So that was probably 99 on a list of a hundred things that I ever thought I would be doing. Right. So right. as I moved through it, I found that I could control my schedule. I could control my input. I could control my output, the quality of that. I could control my day. I could control the financial gain that I had. I could control how hard I worked. And um, there's a lot to be said for controlling all of the aspects of your day versus being in some cubicle on the 15th floor with everybody else telling you what to do, right? So right. that to me kind of unlocked a, a, a path for me where I could say, okay, some of those other things I really wanted to do, like I wanted to be a race car driver or I wanted you know, to someday you know, coach people or, or to do whatever, those things came eventually because they were in front of me all the time. So um, now I have some cars and I race them around the track and it's, I'm not a race car driver, but I still have that itch scratched. You know what I mean? And um, I've just been able to do some of those things that I always really wanted to do. So yeah, I, you know, to get into a car and run around a track at 58 years of age, you know, for the, for the first time, most people wouldn't think that you would do that. But um, I, I just have to tell you, I, I, think, I think when you put your time in and you do the right things, a lot more opportunities open up to you if you look for them. And, and if, if, you're, if you're looking for them and if you're, if you're considering what those things could blossom into, they always show up. I mean, they just always seem to be there. Um, because they're in the forefront of your mind. And, and again, I said that earlier, what you see, you get, it just, it just seems to happen that way. Before I let you go, and this has been an awesome talk, um, tell people where they can pick up your book. If they want to head to your website, like what's the best way for someone to keep in touch with you, whether it's other podcasts, uh, your book signing, stuff like that. Please let us know. Well, um, you can go to kenrusk.com and there you'll find the book and you'll also find a course that I offer. Um, you know, I've seen courses out there for 
$2,000. This is a course that's $99. You get a free $25 book with it. And if you do that, I will donate one to someone of your choice, a mentee, son or daughter, grandson, granddaughter, whatever, uncle, aunt, friend, cousin. I will donate that to them for free. If you don't have somebody, then I'll donate to someone that needs it in our local area. I never set out to make money on this book. My life was really good before that. It just happened that this became a bestseller and that was just unbelievable to me. Um, but yeah, this is a give back moment for me. This whole project is. And uh, if someone goes there and checks it out, I'll be happy to donate one on their behalf. You can also get it at Barnes and Nobles and you know all the, all the typical places, yeah. Amazon, iBooks, um, in, independent local bookstores, don't forget those. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a good gig and I hope everyone checks it out and, and gets something valuable out of it. Is there a thoughts for you to write a second book or a follow-up or do you have other ideas and always from a creative outlook where maybe something happens a year from now, it's like, well, maybe I could put an addendum in here or something like that. Any thoughts on that stuff? Yeah, th there seems to be a lot of demand for what I said earlier. You know, it's one thing to think like a blue collar person. It's another thing to attract uh, blue collar people and, um, you know, to get them into your culture and to build an awesome culture. So there's a, there's some thoughts running around for me to now, now teach the teacher, which is, you know, you have a small company, you want to grow it. How can you attract people? How can you keep long-term people and get this machine rolling? Because the power of a lot of people working in, in concert will drive your business way further than you can drive it on your own. I guarantee you, I've seen that not only in my place, but in a lot of other places as well. So there's some thought to writing a book from the business side of it, but um, I'm, I'm really loving what I'm doing right now. I love talking with, with uh, folks like you. It's been so much fun. And uh, to see people with these light bulbs go off, it's just amazing to me. And um, so yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push that message as far and wide as I can and uh, just see where it goes. It's a great book and uh, it's inspiring to me and uh, it's, I can't recommend it enough to everyone else. So uh, Ken, thank you for your time today. Uh, have a great time with your daughter's wedding. And uh, don't dig too many ditches that day. Either, so. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me. It's been fun. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. You might not know this, but before I record an episode, I like to break a sweat. And I do that using the ChopFit. Over the course of the past year, the ChopFit has allowed me to lose weight, tone up my body, and feel even more amazing about myself. A feeling that you should all feel about yourselves as well. If you use this code, SpearChop10, you get $10 off your order. Once again, use code SPEARCHOP10 for $10 off your chocolate order. It'll change your life. Thank you. Hi, I'm Emily Roger. And I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Hi, 
Hi, I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.